Hi, my name is Courtney Sabo and welcome to the Great Design Lead Podcast. I am a product designer currently working at Canvas, a diversity recruiting platform, and I'm also running a startup called Copa on the side. That's great. <laughs> Good job. I, I was really excited to uh, talk to you today. Um, and it's kind of uh, uh, weird talking to you because um, uh, the two of us uh, graduated from the same uh, program in the same school, um, uh, Drexel. And it's kind of funny because um, we graduated at different times. So a lot of your work and uh, examples of things that we should do was uh, was shown in class. And so it's kind of funny to like actually be talking to you when our professors were like mentioning your name over the last couple of years. So does that does that feel strange to you? <laughs> it definitely feels strange and also even more so because I'm currently on this big road trip and part of it was to see my family after COVID. But when I saw my parents, they were like, can you get rid of some of your old Drexel projects? Because <laughs> they just like accumulate over time. And I think at the time I like did not feel comfortable just like throwing them away or recycling them. But it finally came to that time. But it brought me back to some seriously, maybe good and bad memories of, you know, staying up late with a pen and paper and drawing perfect circles and all of that. Oh my god, I can really relate to that. <laughs> it was definitely weird, like, the last two years with all being online, when the first two years you're, like, in the lab until, like, two in the morning or one in the morning, doing stuff oh, right before it's due. <laughs> right, yeah, that must have been really different. Um, but yeah, I, I was excited to talk to you because, um, uh, I think that, uh, what you've done since you graduated from Drexel is really neat. I've seen some of your stuff in class when they were showing us examples of things to do. Um, and I think that what you're doing now is really neat. But before we get into that, um, I kind of wanted to get to know you as a person. And so I, I wanted to hear a little bit about you even before Drexel and, and like, what were you like and, and what were you interested in and, and why did you even consider graphic design before you even understood what product design was? Yeah, good question. So I grew up in a really small town in Pennsylvania called Phoenixburg. It's a town of about ten to 15,000 people, so relatively lower income and surrounded by lots of farmland, but very, very pretty and like a great place to grow up. And I am the youngest of three with my sister being the oldest at nine years older and my brother being the second oldest or the middle child at seven years older. So there was a pretty big gap between us growing up. And of course, that gap, you know, kind of faded over the years. But, you know, when you're one and your brother's eight, it obviously feels quite different. So uh, I think I was just kind of the loner child in a sense. Like I, my parents always said that I was really good at occupying myself and kind of playing with myself. Um, I think understandably, they were probably exhausted after having two kids and raising them and then ha now having this third one. And I don't know. I, I feel like I was always kind of a crafty person. If you think drawing was something that came to me, um, I was talking about, you know, going through all this old school stuff and it was stressful and also like from the younger years as well. And it seemed like we had a lot of projects in elementary school where we had to draw things and they were like shockingly good or like better than I expected I would do as you know a fourth grader um yeah. so yeah I, I think I don't know I just always had this creative sense 
Um, but I also really love math too. And so mm. when I was in middle school, we took this placement test. Um, I, and I guess it was maybe just to test our math abilities, but my childhood best friend and I had tested out of our current grade. So we were actually going to the high school to take math. And I just really, really love math. Yeah. Um, definitely shocking for a, you know, middle schoolers to go, be going to the high school. It's like exactly what you would picture in movies. It's like, you feel very small, very small and very, <laughs> uh, yes, did not feel like you quite belonged there. Um, but yeah, I had always really loved math. And then eventually I think I just ran out of math courses to take by my sophomore year in high school. And, uh, then I started to get into journalism. So our high school had a pretty well-known newspaper that won a lot of student journalism awards. And my sister, you know, nearly a decade earlier was the editor-in-chief in it. And it was always a little competitive with both my brother and sister. <laughs> and uh, I ended up becoming the editor of that newspaper. And I, I liked writing a little bit, but what I really started enjoying was all of the layout design of newspapers. So our newspaper was treated a lot like a magazine. And so we were able to experiment with all the layouts, you know, what you would see like in Vogue and like all of these other places, you know, just trying to pull an inspiration and, you know, had so much creative freedom doing that. Um, but ironically at the same time, you know, I had still really loved math. Um, there were some science classes I really enjoyed. I really loved uh, psychology in high school. And when it came time to decide a major, I actually was really unsure of what career path I would take because uh, I had also I played a lot of sports when I was younger. So I played soccer from the age of three and then, you know, dabbled in various sports throughout middle school and high school. And in high school, I had torn my ACL and LCL in a track meet and oh, had no. surgery on that knee. Yeah, it's, it's okay. They, they have very advanced technology, so I do not have a problem to stay with it. So, um, all worked out very well, but it, it made me really interested in orthopedics. And oh. so when it came down to deciding what career path to take, I was like, Oh, I could, you know, go down the path of becoming an orthopedic surgeon or, I could do something with graphic design and ultimately, you know, you kind of like have to choose a major really early on. And like, even at high school, it's encouraged to know what you're going to go into to like apply to the right colleges, the universities and all of that. And ultimately I knew I did like some form of graphic design from doing all of the newspaper uh, layouts and uh, ultimately decided that that would be the path that I took. Interesting. So, what what really caused the change between the two careers? Were you looking at um, I don't know, just like the number of years to uh, that you're going to have to invest in orthopedic surgeon, or or did you uh, really sit down with your family and decide this is what I'm really really passionate about, uh, or this is what I'm just more curious about? Yeah, it's a good question. I think. I think with the orthopedic, like going down to become an orthopedic surgeon, there are so many years involved in that. And I felt to do that without knowing that I would love it seemed mm. like a risk. 
So yeah. it wasn't, I've always really loved school. Like I woke up as a kid really excited to go to school. So I don't think that was really the issue. It was more so like, what am I going to feel at the end of this education? And with design, I felt like I had a better sense that I would love it. So when you uh, were deciding which graphic design school uh, to apply to, um, I know when I was applying, I was super focused in co-op. And so I was interested in schools like Northeastern and University of Cincinnati and Drexel. Do you remember uh, like shopping for schools and, and trying to decide why you wanted to go to the school that you did? A little bit. So our family didn't have very much money. So kind of immediately I limited myself to schools within Pennsylvania, which is where I grew up because of the funding or the grants that come with that choice. And so that would make the cost of school lower. So that was kind of an immediate, let's look at schools in Pennsylvania. And then from there, I had looked at Carnegie Mellon, a super small school where my sister went called Susquehanna University, and then Drexel. And I, I think that was really it. I think I had maybe looked at some schools out of the state, but it just didn't seem financially doable. So. I actually, I looked through some of your, uh, like your senior thesis project and some other stuff that you did while you were at Drexel. And I, I really liked, uh, that you did a Carnegie Hall project. And I know that there's like so many things that you learn when you're in graphic design and you learn about web, you learn about all of these different things. But can I ask you why you decided to do your senior thesis project on Carnegie Hall and, and what that was like? Yeah, I, so I think as a basis, I'm not sure if Carnegie Hall came first or the idea of rebranding it came first because my senior thesis advisor was Danny Stewart, who I absolutely love to this day. And <laughs> I think at the time I knew I was going into web design, like I had a job lined up for my co-op in web design after school and I think she encouraged me to do non-web as kind of like, this is like your last chance to do something really interesting with print and branding um, because you won't be able to focus on it that much, you know, after graduating or at least immediately after graduating. And so, yeah, I think the, the rebranding came first. And then I think I saw somewhere, you know, just scrolling the news that, um, Carnegie Hall was celebrating their 125th anniversary mm -hmm. and I just thought it was something that I didn't know much about like I'm not a huge I like music but I'm not a huge music person um I don't know that I've actually I don't know that I had visited Carnegie Hall before deciding to do that project um so yeah I, I think one of the really interesting things about design is that you get to learn a lot about so many different fields and industries because your work typically expands, you know, beyond just one, you know, one thing. Like you can design something for healthcare and then design something for a university and, you know, all of these different things. So I think that was kind of the start of it was, you know, recognizing, I don't know much about Carnegie Hall. It seems interesting. It's kind of old. It has an old branding style and it seems like it could use a facelift and, deciding to go down that path and you know thinking about like new york too and comparing to something like the moma i mean there's just 
so many opportunities for this large scale rebranding that I felt would be really interesting to look at. Yeah, I I really I really like the project and I like like fan lettering and also it was it was neat because it was different than the other stuff that you were interested in. I saw your like uh museum Matisse box, which I thought was kind of mm-hmm. cool. And uh and so when you were in school you uh there was a lot of branding and print that you learned. Um but also we we take web design classes and I know that the structure might have been different when you went to school versus uh this year. Um how did you start the idea of moving from graphic design based to more web and product design? Was it from the class or was it the, the classes that you take in school or did you pursue stuff outside of school and learn more about it? I, I listened to a uh a, a podcast with you uh from Design EDU from I think it was the year you graduated. Um and uh I was listening to you talk about product design and, and how uh it's super important for anybody that's going into graphic design to be exposed to it. Um because it's something that's that's uh really important and, and can take your career in like a totally different direction. So how did you fall in love with web and product design? How did that start? Yeah, so like you mentioned, we did have those uh those classes in school. I don't know what they're like now, but when I went they were pretty bad. <laughs> like we were learning uh flash and all of these other things that were just mm. totally irrelevant. And I was like, this is like useless. I'm never going to use this. And like I know I won't use it. And really didn't like web at the time. But it came up because uh at first you have to have a co op, which is a four month term where you do work experience or get your own work experience, like an internship. And I like I mentioned earlier, I'm very competitive. <laughs> I I ended up on the varsity squash team in another story at Drexel. And I feel like then like also the graphic design program is relatively at Drexel, and I feel like there is a competitive sense within it. I'll say healthy in generally, <laughs> but when the co-op list of companies came out and positions, it was floated around that Happy Cog was this like well-known design or web design agency in Philadelphia, and it was like the co-op to get. And I was mm. like, I don't even care that I don't like web design. I just want that one because I want to win. <laughs> I know. I know that sounds like so irrational. Um, but yeah, ultimately had a bunch of interviews at places and uh, again, I, I think I didn't know anything about, about web design. I felt like I probably wouldn't get that education at Drexel's in the current classes that we were taking. So ultimately, yeah, got the offer and decided to take it and you know, work there for my four months or I guess six months off actually and, uh, had Two really amazing mentors who were, I think she was just a, she was a design, I'm a level designer at the time, and then my design director were just one phenomenal designers and two, you know, really knew how to teach web design. I remember some of the, uh, kind of tasks they would give me all added up to be able to design a web page. Like I remember, at one point, they had me design some rudimentary web page, and they're like, "Well, 
you know, like you need navigation and like a back button. And these are all the things that you weren't taught in school, but it's something that's so easy to overlook when you are surfing the web or browsing the web that, you know, you just kind of ignore so many parts of the page. And they were so patient that whole time. And ultimately, I ended up working there uh, the rest of, I guess my call-off was at the end of my junior year. And then I had worked, I think, maybe like 20 to 30 hours a week throughout my senior year. And then they offered me a true salaried full-time position upon graduating. That's that's not easy for someone who's also in classes. Yeah, my days. (laughs) Were you okay? (laughs) I was actually, yeah. (laughs) I've always been pretty good at managing my time, so... My days would basically start. I would get up at five because our squash practice was at six. And so we had practice from six to eight and then, or maybe eight thirty even. And then my first classes were at nine. Those were typically the, a three hour design class and would go to that. And then I think generally I would then hop on the subway, go, downtown to work at Happy Cog, come back, usually have one shorter class and then one night class. Um, and that that wasn't always the case. I'm not really sure how I managed to put it in, honestly. Um, I think maybe some days I worked a little longer and some days worked a little less to fit in, you know, an, an appropriate number of credits each year. But it really wasn't bad. I, I pride myself that I had never pulled an all-nighter. I don't think I was ever at the lab past. I don't know, maybe past 10. It's quite hard when you're, you know, playing a college sport and having to wake up at five, you kind of have to give your body the rest that it takes. So you just become really good at fitting in what you can with the time that you have. Yeah, I I remember um, uh, being in the graphic design program and then also being on the crew team and, and like mm-hmm. having to wake up at like five. And, and I just remember like, what is happening? Like, how is this, how is this possible? But you know, yeah. I ended up working out, and I was like working part time jobs on top of that, and and it's weird because you you look back now and you're like, how how did that how did I pull that off? Because I can't see myself doing that now, but it's I don't know. I guess it's kind of just like the college drive of just being like, well, this is the only option, so I'm gonna do it. <laughs> I think it really is. I mean, I also think that everything is so exciting in college. At least it was like I didn't know anybody directly, so it was just. Like so many opportunities thrown in your face, and I think that really can make you a ball of energy to want to try everything and do everything. But oh my gosh, now the thought of waking up at 5 a.m. to go work out. I did do that for some time a couple of years ago in San Francisco when I uh, had to, when I had like an office job, but oh, it's, it's rough now. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, when, when you talk about, um, uh, actually learning about web design was that learning about research and wireframing and high fidelity mock-ups and working with developers like how how were you introduced to it and was there anything that seemed really new to you that took a long time to learn hmm um i don't know if anything took a really long time to learn but it definitely felt like a process to get to the point like i think by the end of my senior year after having worked 
at Happy Cog a year, so with the internship and then also, you know, the part-time throughout the week, I, I think I probably felt pretty adequate as a, as a designer then. Like I felt like I could handle, you know, designing multiple web pages or flows. But in the beginning, it, it was very rudimentary and trying to remember some of the tasks. I think, I think a couple of the first tasks that the design director, MJ, gave to me were just, uh, creating wireframes from existing web pages. So mm. learning how to wireframe by looking at something that does exist already and kind of understanding the components of it. The That's second so thing smart. that they, yeah, had me do was QAing, so going through the website that Happy Cog was building and testing them for bugs, whether that's functional or visual. And that also taught me a lot about it. And like there I inspect the code too, so I started to have some better understanding of how the HTML and CSS that we did somewhat learn in school kind of came into play. Uh and so that was I think that was honestly one of the most helpful things because I still QA projects to this day um, at any of the, the companies I've worked at. And so really understanding the translation from design to, develop, to, to development and what can go wrong there, I think mm-hmm. was pretty crucial and, and shaped how I design today, which is very kind of engineering focused. So making sure that what I'm building is, you know, follows some sort of system thinking and also will, you know, it is able to be developed for the web. That makes a lot of sense. I, I've started, um, learning how to develop in order to be a better designer and have more independence mm. that I can work on a full project and, uh, I don't know, just be able to be more independent. And it's really changed a lot of the way that I, I look at things and, and when I'm designing things, I can literally ask myself, is this going to work? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, is this actually feasible? So that's, I, I really like that you said that. And, and I, I had one question, uh, one last question about your college time. Um, when I was in school, uh, I knew I, that graphic design was the closest thing that I wanted to study. And, um, but the problem was, is that I felt like there was something missing, but there was nothing I could do about it because I didn't know what it was. Um, I just knew that I was closest to where I wanted to be in that classroom. And so, uh, it wasn't until my senior year when I did an independent study and I took a Udemy class on, uh, user experience design and, uh, specifically Adobe XD. Uh, I, I heard that it was a program and that I didn't know anything about it, so I just decided to take it. And I didn't know that user experience design was really a thing. Um, and so I took that class and the amount of relief that I felt of finding something that I actually really felt nothing was missing and there was so much for me to do and, and things were based in objective uh fact like whether something's working or not um user testing really understanding what people are saying where i felt so uncomfortable in in a world where um everything was so subjective 
um, the idea that things can be data-based uh, decisions, it it gave me so much relief. So I was just curious if the how you felt when you started to see this kind of adjacent career path rather than the traditional graphic design career path and, and like how you felt about that. Because I had kind of a strong emotion about it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I love the classes at Drexel. I think my biggest pain point with it is just within print, you know, you see all these ad campaigns or even just like posters or, or books or packaging, whatever we were designing. You just thought like at the end of the day, it's going to be thrown away. And mm. I think one from an environmental perspective that really bothered me, but two also it's like, what am I making if it's just like, creating endless stuff that is going to be put into the world and then taken away and it just it didn't feel uh i don't know that fulfilling to me but as i got into web design at happy cog i realized like oh oh these like websites typically stay around for at least five years before they're rebranded and done again like five years is a lot better than you know a couple months of a billboard for example and so yeah. I thought that was really interesting. And then from the US side as well, so at Happy Cogs, the designers there were like quote unquote full stack designers. So you did everything from wireframes to uh, the actual visual design to, you know, any user research to then working with the engineers to develop it and ensuring that, you know, it's developed as planned. And I think that just felt really good. Like I didn't really get the sense of a ton of collaboration that happens in the graphic design world. Mm. Um, I think like our classes alone were pretty independent. Like you have a couple group projects and they, you know, go horribly or whatever. You're like, well, <laughs> this is kind of terrible. I don't want to do that anymore. Um, but I did see this really interesting chance to work with people across, you know, different fields, right? Like, as a graphic designer, chances of you working with a software engineer are pretty slim, or chances of you being the person as like the main stakeholder from your company are probably pretty slim. So I think the ability to kind of own projects seemed interesting. Not that I was at the time at Happy Cog, but I saw my mentors being able to do these projects and talk to CMOs at companies and stand up for their designs and all, and all of that. And that I think is is maybe what seemed a little more interesting and fulfilling for me. I really like that. I and when you when you talk about making things that that matter um, and have longer shelf life and longer and also something that's not physical, um, those are all things that I was really drawn to too. Like the I, I remember making things and just feeling really frustrated. I'm like, does this even matter? Like, mm -hmm. what I'm do like, what's gonna happen to this? Am I, am I the person that cares about this the most? And if I'm the person that cares about this the most and is gonna use it the most, then what am I doing? Mm -hmm. And it was really frustrating and also kind of scary the idea of going into a career where um, you feel like what you do like doesn't matter. And so I I was really nervous about that, and uh, I wasn't excited about graduating. And I and when I decided that I wanted to go into product design and web design and I learned about Webflow and I learned how to develop and I learned of all of these different things, all the things that you were listing out. 
I was actually excited to graduate <laughs> and I was excited mm-hmm. about what's going to happen in the future. So uh, I, I really relate to what you're talking about. And so when you graduated, you're working at Happy Pog. And uh, am I right that you went from Happy Pog to Sequence or was there a job in between that? Yep, that's, that's correct. Okay. And so I, I uh, uh, listened to... Um, uh, a podcast with uh, Jack uh, about Copa, and uh, he was talking about how you two met at Sequence, um, and uh, he showed you his idea for Copa the day before he was going to uh, uh, um, release it, and you were like, oh no, like there's so many things that are wrong, you need to fix XYZ, like this is how you do it, and uh, uh, his soul was crushed a little bit, but but you were the person to really help him uh, move into like the UX world and and really fix a lot of things that uh, that he really needed a good partner on. Is that is that right? Yeah, that that's pretty accurate. <laughs> I think for some like back, or I guess like my way of thinking. So happy dog, our design director was maybe not the most complimentary like he just really pushed you to be a really good designer and also kind of the professors at Drexel too in some mm-hmm. sense uh didn't over compliment and so I am definitely very straight to the point and with my feedback and I realize now that not everybody is uh that is appropriate for and <laughs> so yeah so Jack and I were both recruited to work at Sequence I joined maybe six months prior to him and Sequence was a web design and development agency. I was a designer. He is a software engineer. And yeah, he was working on side projects and one day wanted to show me the, I think it was just the homepage on his computer. And of course he and our other co-founder at the time, both software engineers had designed it themselves and he was like, oh, what do you think? And, you know, I just thought it was something he was working on on the side and, you know, not a big deal. And I was <laughs> like, oh, yeah, it's, like, pretty terrible. Like, even from, like, a basic graphic design level, like, the color system was very funky and there was, like, a toggle for navigation and all of these things. And, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to redesign the homepage. And at the time at Sequence, I was working on their Apple account, which mm-hmm. uh, was also contracted that I worked for or worked on Apple projects 40 hours a week. And what they don't tell you is like the big glamorous brands are not so glamorous. So I was kind of itching for a new project anyway. And yeah, just started working on Pad Piper, which is what it was called at the, mm-hmm. uh, during the night and just, you know, really experimenting more design and especially on UX and kind of again like having that creative freedom that I didn't have at work at the time and just being able to like play and experiment and then along the way teaching Jack and Zach our other co-founder about like basic design principles and like basic UX principles and yeah ultimately after doing that for several months and redesigning most of the pages on the site they asked me to be a co-founder in the company so we wow. stayed uh working on that on the side for a couple of years before going full-time so just 
Jack ever tell you that that moment caused him to trust you a lot? And uh, knowing that the the feedback that you actually can give him is what you're uh, honestly feeling uh, after having that moment of, so what do you think? Actually, <laughs> I think yeah. you should do X, Y, Z. Yeah, it's a good question. I think I maybe had a reputation at the company that he probably knew about, which was like one to to be on the Apple account. Like we had some pretty high quality designers on that Apple account. And I think one, there was some trust that was like, okay, like she works on you know one of the world's like most well-known brands every day. She must know something. Um, even though that's like definitely not the correlation that someone should make. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I, Zach is a very, as I've learned, a, like a data person and very structured. So, you know, I provided along the way many objective reasons or objective decisions um, mm-hmm. that made sense to him. And I, and I think generally engineers are that way. And I think understanding that can help you work with them a lot better because they are confined in many ways by code and understanding that like they need like objective reasons um, because they don't think as abstractly uh, can be really useful when having that relationship. Yeah, like knowing your audience and knowing how to really explain uh, your more creative uh, uh, design-based mind to someone who's more database uh that's that's not always something that's very easy <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly and so uh um am i right that that uh jack was interning there and uh he that's kind of interning uh finding housing that's kind of like the idea that sparked pad piper um which ended yeah. up changing into copa yeah a little bit so Jack also went to a co-op school called the University of Waterloo in Canada, and they have actually either three or five co-ops, I believe, depending on their programs. And so he had also done co-ops, but at their school, it is a lot of software engineers, and mm. they typically come to the San Francisco Bay Area for their co-ops or internships. And with that, they have to find housing for four months at a time, kind of on both ends, right? Like, unless you're going to have a year-long lease and, like, sublet it at your own, you know, at the school and then find these short-term stays mm-hmm. or mid-term stays kind of for these co-ops is pretty daunting. Like, it, I mean, it's generally hard to find an apartment in many cities. Um, and then add to the fact that, like, you have no experience doing it and you're, in some cases, less than 21 years old. So, like, landlords don't take you seriously. Um, so I think he really saw that problem and it spoke to me too because when I at co-op, even though I really wanted the happy cog one before realizing that, you know, there are jobs in New York and like some other places that seem interesting. But one thing that tied me down was that I didn't feel like I could move because I wasn't a year long lease and you know, I wasn't in a financial situation where my parents like backed me up on rent while I like found someone, um, if I could even find someone. And so I instantly got kind of the accessibility need for this to make people who don't have the, you know, this extra income to spend on rent in two places, let's say, to be able to find the space that they need 
and make sure that it fits all of their needs. Yeah, and so Jack was kind of like in this situation, and and uh, and so were you, and you were talking about like a different way to do housing, and so I thought it was it was kind of neat the way that so there's things like Airbnb, there's things like Zillow, there's things like Craigslist, but the thing that was specific was um yeah the term of like medium long stays. That, like not long term, that short term is medium, and the fact that there was like nothing out there for that. So, like, I I know that there's a lot of um like logistical things that go into a startup, um whether it's like funding and all of this other stuff. But how did how did you guys even start, and like what uh level was Jack at when he brought you onto the project, and like where did you have to go from that to uh, be just even like five years after that point. Yeah, we basically knew nothing when we started. <laughs> we were two engineers and and a designer who knew how to build websites and build good products. But beyond that, we didn't really know too too much. Jack had some knowledge because his dad, not in engineering or in like the digital world had created a company and had sold it. So, like, there was, like, maybe some knowledge from there. And mm. then also Jack went to school for management engineering, which is a mix of business and engineering. So okay. he might have picked up, like, a couple things there. Um, but I do think both of them are really interested in tech, whereas I, you know, didn't and still maybe don't particularly care about <laughs> all things tech-related, but they were really in the tech world. And, you know, with that, I think they had followed the path of some companies and had some understanding of how it works. But uh, ultimately, we, you know, we worked on this on the side for a couple of years. We just built the product. We would, you know, call hosts in the area. We, we were very focused on San Francisco at the time mm-hmm. and would get word of mouth recommendations from them. And then with that, our the renters who came to Pad Pipe at the time, now Copa, uh, were mainly from the University of Waterloo. So we kind of spread word of mouth there. So we had renters coming. We had, you know, several dozen hosts or so in San Francisco who were willing to rent to them. And we're able to kind of create this ecosystem within them, the Bay Area. Um, but beyond that, we, I don't even know if we were charging anything at the time for the service, which is like, mm-hmm. Now looking back, like an obvious, you know, don't do that. But, <laughs> um, it gave us, you know, the room to grow and like we all had full time jobs and Jack was still in school at the time. So it didn't quite matter, but ultimately we did want to go full time with it and we were still working and we decided, okay, we'll try to get into YC, which is a pretty well known startup accelerator in the Bay Area. And we applied and we got an interview and then ultimately we got rejected. So we mm. would not be joining that program. And that, and at the time we had still had our full time jobs in the back of school. And that night we were kind of like sitting around, kind of moping, you know, it's like really big moments like get an interview, but then to get rejected is obviously a downer. And we were like, actually, like, let's just do it. Let's just go full time and try to make this work in some capacity. 
and I'm unsure of how long after that I put in my notice. I remember that I I was on project at at work, and you know they're like contracts with companies, and you know I I didn't want to screw them over and have to leave like mid project, so I wanted to give a lot of extra time, and so I think I tried to give like a six week notice. To let them know, like, hey, like, you're gonna have to find someone else in the project. And they were like, oh, we're not gonna keep you that long then. Oh. <laughs> it was, um, yeah, it, it was not the response I, you know, had hoped for or thought that would happen. But, you know, ultimately it all worked out and then ended up leaving, you know, several weeks later. And we all learned time on it. And so with that, I to make money. I think that was one thing that we kind of took away from the interview because they do give you reasons as to why you were rejected. And mm. one was revenue focus was okay, we'll introduce like a B two B program where mm. companies will pay us to help house their interns, and we did that for a couple of months. And you know, at that point, we had saved some money, but we're obviously you know we lived in San Francisco, our rent for you know thousands and thousands of dollars. And we were like, okay, you know, we need to do something to make more money um, or get some sort of funding to help us last, you know, even just personally. And we, I think we were just applying to a bunch of different accelerators and startup programs in San Francisco and maybe in Toronto too, where Zach was. And we came across one called FX and it was run by WeFunder, which helps companies uh, get funding on uh, kind of crowdfunding online and it was a female founder focused accelerator so I was like oh my god we have one female founder like we have that I don't know like it must be okay and it turns out we actually did get in then um, definitely took some time to prove ourselves but it was good to kind of get pushed on our business thinking uh, from the people who were accepting us into the program and with that you know, one, it introduced us to a couple other founders. We did not realize that we were the first batch ever, so we were kind of beginning takes as well. But I think we maybe got like twenty thousand dollars out of it, so okay, like we can like last oh. a couple more months on this and you know pay off our salaries. Because the good thing about digital products is that they don't cost a lot of money to sustain mm. themselves. It's just you know some software fees, and so with that, we were able to last. Ultimately, we applied to YC again in that fall for their winter program and then got the interview and then did indeed get accepted. And I think that's when things changed more so because YC is really like kind of a condensed version of business school in a sense or startup school. And it's a three-month program. You have weekly office hours with partners there who just talk kind of one-on-one about what your company or about your company with them and then a weekly dinner where you learn from someone typically it's another YC startup so that could be you know Airbnb is one Stripe is one Dropbox so they brought in really interesting people to talk about something super specific and how they got through that and it was just fascinating it's like you finally understood how companies got to where they were and I think after the end of that three-month program we felt like we had a 
pretty good sense um, that we had all of the education at least we needed to start off and, and make the company grow. Was this time period, did you have to uh, find housing to be close to this program or were you kind of living in that area anyway? Yeah, we we were living in San Francisco, so we didn't have to find housing for that because yeah. the program's just like off San Francisco. What was that moment like when you were walking into your boss's office to tell them that you were going to go do this thing that had a lot of uncertainty to it, where this job was really established and had a lot of certainty to it? Well, I, I feel like if that was me, I would have a lot of issues with like clenching my teeth and my heart going really fast. Like, what was that like? Yeah, I I think I had talked to my parents maybe the night before. I didn't want them to dwell on it. They're definitely worriers, and uh, and so I uh walked. I guess I had talked. Yeah, I had talked to them, and my dad, I think, expressed some concerns and on the flip side though and more surprisingly my mom was very open to that idea she understood Mm. that I wasn't very happy where I was or the project I was working on and so uh yeah that gave me some confidence I felt like for my mom who is definitely like she was you know always kind of by my side growing up definitely a mommy's girl (laughs) <laughs> and for her to like understand my thinking and, and reasoning behind all of this, um, it gave me some confidence. I definitely had like a moment of gut drop, you know, walking into the conference room to tell my boss, um, who I was very close with. I had worked under for, for several years at the time. Um, mm. but she totally got it. It was just, it wasn't her making the decision to, uh, have me leave sooner. It's a much more, you know, politics, you know, politics at the company. Um, but I did feel a huge sense of relief, uh, and yeah, I think it was one of the better decisions I have made for sure. Another thing I wanted to ask you about this time period of your life, um, I I get a, a lot of joy uh, whenever my podcast has a new country where the listener is from. Uh, and it's I have this like list of all the places that these people that listen to the podcast are from. And it, it makes me so happy that something that I'm, I'm making and put time into is actually being used by someone. And I don't have a monetary gain for it at the moment, but, uh, it's really exciting when, when that happens. And so I can only imagine that's just on a totally different level when you're looking at your analytics and users and people signing up for memberships and people actually staying in the places that you have listed what 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 did that feel like and and i know it's different because you're on a team of three people but i'm just curious what that was like yeah it was cool it was quite satisfying to feel <laughs> like something we made was actually working in some capacity and yeah truly you know i think we served international students quite well because whether that was for either on campus days or for internships in the United States. So we would get so many views from all over the world and to see the map on the analytics 
was like, oh my god, like, the three of us made this thing. And mm-hmm. that was just so, so neat to see. And then, of course, you know, we got so many, uh, so many praises from the and the host too from time to time, just about like how easy it was. And, you know, it, it made us feel quite good because I think, you know, something that investors and, and just people in general would always question is how we were different from Airbnb, which is like very understandable. We are extremely similar, very similar business model. Um, but we were so focused on these midterm stays. And at the time, Airbnb wasn't doing their monthly stays. Um, and still to this day, they're actually quite expensive. And so we would always try to find hosts who were more used to renting traditionally and turn them into kind of monthly hosts versus taking short-term hosts who are used to really high, high-cost nightly stays and transforming them into, you know, monthly stays because we knew they would charge you know, kind of an exorbitant amount for many people, especially people who are either students currently or have just graduated. One thing that I imagine, and I heard from one of the interviews, um, was that uh, you do something that's a little different, uh, where uh, Airbnb sometimes has the the, uh, experience aspect of their stay, where their host is actually like their host and their tour guide. Something that is really important for um, the people that are coming to a new city and maybe they're by themselves and uh, they go to work and come home, have no friends, go to work, come home, still no friends. <laughs> like a lot of people go through that. And so I really like the thing that you guys came up with um, suggesting things to do, places to go, um, uh, how to get involved in your uh, neighborhood and and a little bit of a nudge to go out of the place that you're staying and go find more things to do. How did that idea come up? Because I thought that was a really good idea. Yeah, I mean, we basically just pulled from our own experiences. So Jack knew me from his internships, and then when I had moved to San Francisco, I barely knew one person who was an old squash teammate, and he became my roommate. But beyond that, I didn't know anyone, so it is pretty drastic to, you know, move 3,000 miles away without knowing anyone and, like, trying to essentially start your life again. And so making new friends or, like, knowing what to do in cities. And I, I think that's really where the idea sparked. Ultimately, we didn't do too much with that because what we found was more powerful than was just helping people find housemates, like a very basic need. Mm-hmm. But um, understandably, a lot of the people who were on Copa looking for places were students or recent grads looking in, you know, expensive cities like San Francisco or New York uh, later on. And we knew that they needed help. Like they couldn't afford places without them. And then added on to the fact that they don't know people in that city, obviously it becomes very difficult to find someone, you know, a critical scenario where you're just kind of, <laughs> you know, hoping that it turns out okay. And so, yeah, how does that work? Yeah, so early on, actually, we, we ended up changing the experience uh, because we had just guessed wrong. So early on, it was you came to Copa, and as you were looking at properties, you could find housemates for very specific properties. And you could do this across many different ones um, because we thought that our, our hypothesis is that when you're moving to a new city for 
a determined amount of time. You would care more about the place you stayed, specifically the location, than you would the people living there mm. with you. Um, and we did all this user testing and kind of walked through with, you know, dozens of people and ended up building that solution and then found out over the next couple of months that it, it just it wasn't right. It did not mm. work at scale. Um, I think it really did work in theory and all the people, you know, completely understood and, you know, followed along with that thinking through testing. But when it was out there in the world, we just didn't see it being used as we had hoped. And we were still growing at the time and, and we do need a mass amount of people, you know, just like tens of thousands of people, not just, you know, thousands coming to the site to see, uh, to get to see enough people who are actually looking for these specific properties. And so with that, we ended up changing the model to more traditional, which is just go to Copa, you say, I'm looking for housemates in San Francisco for, mm-hmm. you know, these states, and you can start to filter down by their gender, kind of some of their habits. And that was like clear, clearly the winner and worked a lot better. And then from there, they would find out where they wanted to live. That makes sense. So, um, when did you, uh, first of all, when and, and why did you make the change from Pad Piper to Copa? Because Copa is like, Pad Piper, like, I've heard of both of those words before. I've never heard of the word Copa before. How did you, how did you make that switch? Yeah, well, I never loved the name Pad Piper. Jack named it before I had joined kind of a spoof on the show Silicon Valley and the show about startups was Pied Piper and because we were housing Pat all the things. Anyway, so we lasted with that for a couple of years but ultimately post YC we ended up raising a seed round of money and one of the investors was also a design firm and they said you know, we think you should maybe consider renaming uh, you know, it's it's not going to stand the test of time. Like people aren't going to know what the show is. The show won't last mm-hmm. forever. Um, the fact that it had like the word pad in it kind of killed me, but, uh, <laughs> like there's just like, pad. yeah, it was just, yeah, like any, any sort of pad. I don't know. And, <laughs> uh, so yes, we finally decided to rename, we went through all of these exercises and the, trickiest part about naming is that you know so many people have squatted on domains mm. and making them incredibly expensive to buy especially any.com mm. and we really wanted something short that was easy to spell that could pass the radio test of you know knowing how to spell it um, just from hearing it and uh ultimately yeah landed on copa we it was not necessarily our first choice. Like we wanted something that was uh, not necessarily a translation. So Copa is, it means a couple different things in different languages. So in, I think in Swahili, it means heart. Hmm. I might be getting backwards. Swahili means, actually, Swahili means together, I believe. And in hmm. Latvia, it means heart. So we are hmm. not tied to Latvia or... <laughs> Mm-hmm. The Swahili language, for that matter. Um, but it was just a word that we really liked, and because 
the meanings of like together and heart, like the concept of built communities and renters across the world seemed very enticing. So ultimately land on that. Of course we could not have dot com, but uh we dot 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 co which seemed perfect. Yeah. Like close enough. <laughs> so uh, we we talked about how it started. We talked about the different features that you did. We talked about your funding and, and all of the logistics, most of the logistics, not all of them, otherwise it'd be a long time, but a lot of them. Um, and so I'm curious um, how you went from working at COPA full-time to taking on this new position at Canvas, um, and at what point did you decide to apply to this new job, and, and how did that work with your your co-founders and your involvement in COPA. Um, I'm curious about how that part of your life happened because I know that I think Canvas was fairly recent. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So near the end of this past year, COPA was obviously having a hard time in the intersection of real estate and travel and hospitality, which mm. were three of the hardest hit markets during COVID. And so when the first kind of news of COVID came out in March of 2020, uh, it did, we immediately saw everybody cancel their stays. And mm. we made the decision at the company that it was not worth keeping any like service fees that we had gained from that because we knew all of these people were struggling. And at the end of the day, that wasn't going to make or break our company. Um, obviously, having money helps, but we're at a small enough state or an early enough stage that we felt like doing the right thing was more important. So, gave back all the money, and then, I mean, it was like pretty dismal for the next couple of months. We were working on many product things, so maybe didn't feel that dismal, but you know, our revenue just did not. Um, but we took it as a chance grow kind of nationally because we knew at some point COVID would lift we would start traveling and moving around again and so I mean the good part about COVID is we grew from you know three to five cities to like 70 to 100 in the U.S. so we knew a lot of hosts were looking for people to stay at the time and figured even if we couldn't help them in that moment when they signed up Within a couple months, we hoped that would change. Mm. And so I think one is like the business reason, which is just, I did not see, we did not see for that matter that COVID would allow our lives to return to normal at the pace that we had hoped. Mm. And so with that, we knew we wanted to keep the company going, but also knew that we need to still pay the employees that we kept on. And with that, I was like, okay, I can look for a job with, you know, another salary that I can pay myself, or I can get more money than what I make now as a founder, which is always pretty low, mm-hmm. and be able to help sustain the company. And then the second part of it was, is that being a founder is just, it's really hard. Like, I think people will say that, um, but I think it's over glamorized in so many senses, and I think by kind of the end of 2020, I was feeling like, one, the business wasn't in a place where, 
you know, I was really excited about the growth. Um, mm. And then also, as a founder, you don't really get to do just one job. You have to do like 20 different jobs every day. Yeah. So the amount of design work I was doing was down to, you know, maybe 20% of my time. And it was just rough. Like I managed our customer success team, which is um, obviously no one writes into your customer success to be like, Oh my God, I love your product so much. It's more like, this isn't working or this isn't working or like I'm having this problem. And mm. so I think it becomes a mental overload. And I knew that I would be much happier being able to focus more solely on design or like the parts of COPA that I really like doing, which is kind of product design and product strategy. And I knew that I could not do that as a founder. Mm. And so at that time, I started like, looking for a job kind of early 2021. And mm. I had known about Canvas because they, years ago, they helped interns find jobs. So their whole premise then was uh, to make internships more accessible because uh, you may have seen many internships go to the Ivy League schools or Ivy mm. School kids, um, which is, first of all, completely unfair, but also, you know, there are so many other qualified intern applicants for those positions. And so their kind of just was to highlight all of these skills that these people have to make the to make them more appealing beyond what they want. And we had actually partnered with them at COPA um, because we were very internship focused, they were internship focused. So we ran some form of partnership and through that met some of the team there, met the CEO and ultimately, yeah, I connected with the CEO while I was, you know, kind of perusing around. He was like, Oh, like, are you looking for a job? Um, and so ultimately went through the interview process with them as well as a couple other companies. And yeah, just like really liked the idea of behind Canvas. I have had some issues finding jobs, but I've had lots of friends who have worked for jobs for months or even more than a year, and, you know, it still is a really painful process, and so it kind of brought me back to the early days of COPA as well, which is like, finding apartments is really hard, so these, like, very basic needs that people have that aren't being fulfilled properly, um, and so that the problem was very interesting. The team seemed great, and it's at a small enough size at about seventy people that mm-hmm. I can still own things, but also not be responsible to, you know, generate revenue every month. I when I was learning about Canvas, I actually I get Canvas emails uh, from Drexel, which is uh, I don't know if they were doing that when when you were uh, in school, but. Uh, I, I get those um, now, and I wanted to learn a little bit more about Canvas, and the more that I learned about it, and I listened to um, a couple podcasts with um, the CEO, uh, Ben, and mm-hmm. learning about like what he's about and, and the, the thought process behind why Canvas is created, and I thought he was a really interesting character that like, dropped out of high school, started this company really looked into recruiting, understanding like how this all works and then seeing something that wasn't really working. And so mm-hmm. I'm gonna tell you my impression of Canvas and you'll let me know if, if I'm looking at it the right way. It seems like 
uh, a recruiting service platform help that is really on merit-based recruiting, not title-based recruiting, and they care more about who you are than what you are. Do you think that I'm looking at that the right way? Yeah, I, I think generally, yeah. I, I think it kind of goes back to their internship focus phase as well, which is right, like the way that people that recruiters typically work is that they'll go to you know whatever platform they use, whether it's you know LinkedIn or, or any of these other kind of sourcing platforms, and they'll type in you know software engineer with experience at Google with, you know, eight plus years of experience because they have these, right, there's like known companies that produce really great engineers that engineers look at um, and there's certain titles that, that make it seem that way as well. And so by searching like that, it obviously buckets a lot of people. So for all those people who didn't work at Google um, and didn't have that opportunity, that becomes a problem. And obviously that I think it's quite clear that, you know, the people who are able to work at a lot of companies are able to because of their connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally, a lot of people, especially people from underrepresented groups, don't have those types of connections, which makes mm-hmm. finding a job at these companies to then get recognized for other jobs uh, becomes nearly impossible. And so, yes, I, I think you're right that we try to highlight the skills searching by them a lot easier. You know, a list of candidates that is better the best match for those recruiters. Can I can I ask you, now that you're working with the project and you have a little bit more experience with it, um, when somebody's looking for a a talent or somebody to work on their team, um, how is the searching process at Canvas different than the ones that uh you were just talking about like i want somebody who's worked at google i want them to have x number of years of experience and um i want them to graduate from like this list of schools like how is your uh search different to to create more uh variety in the options that the recruiter can look through yeah it's a good question i think at a base level they are probably similar in the way that you search Hmm. i think the difference that i'm seeing is that we're approaching it in a way that we are focused on other profile information right so for example you and i both played varsity sports in university clearly that taught us some things about time management and grit and all of these things right but like those things aren't typically things that come up on someone's profile to know that they're a really hard worker, for example. But that information mm. is incredibly relevant. So what we're working towards is being able to pull in this extra information that really tells the story of who a person is beyond where they worked in the past or beyond their education, if they have any, and focus on what makes them who they are and be able to search for that in a in a structured data sense to allow them to find that. I also say this, and I don't work on the recruiter side of the product <laughs> on Canvas, but that is my base level assumption of, of what we're doing. That makes sense. Yeah, it's like creating more data points to draw from 
uh, if people have these really great features or, or great um, skills about them uh, that just people aren't asking about. It's hard to be you know, pulled out of the haystack for that if it's not even a data point people are looking for. Exactly. Yeah. So um, when when you were just talking a little bit about um, uh, about Canvas, um, I could tell that you were passionate about something, and I kind of want to talk a little bit more about it. So you said um, uh, that a lot of internships go to people that um, are part of Ivy League schools or schools that are really hard to get into or schools that are really expensive to go into, and you you said that it seemed really unfair. Can you can you talk to me a little bit about like fairness and um, equal opportunity rather than like um, some people look at it like a redistribution of opportunity and looking at things from more of a merit base rather than um, pay to play opportunities. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think like fundamentally our education system, especially in the United States, is quite broken and. You know, there are lots of interesting articles about the Ivy League schools and, you know, ultimately they do quite well because their marketing is great and the connections they have built from their alum over time are now, you know, after hundreds of years, really strong. And so I think with that kind of similar to the connections at a company, if you don't have a connection, it's quite hard to get into those schools, especially mm -hmm. if, you know, you are an underrepresented group or like, Maybe you're a shy female and aren't that outspoken and like don't understand the path of getting into those schools. Um, and also like you don't need to get into those schools or any schools for that matter to you know, have a successful career. And I think it's very easy to look at it as someone hiring, for example, you know, to say like, I want someone from these schools because I know they produce quality, uh, quality candidates for that matter. Um, and that's obviously, you know, not the case. There are lots of other um, other schools that produce quality candidates. Someone who taught themselves could be a quality candidate for that company. So it's just teaching people about how to look past these basic assumptions we have to be able to help people find jobs or get into the right schools for that matter. There's there's even more people that are, um, uh, and this is kind of more of a recent development. The idea that um, in some industries, you really don't have to go to college, and a lot of the time, uh, getting that uh, experience and spending more time working and uh, being mentored in more of like an apprenticeship situation can be a lot more beneficial to people. But there's still that idea of, well, if you didn't go to XYZ school, um, obviously you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and exactly. I, you, what do you think about that? I think it exists because it's very difficult to sift through candidates. For me, that is my very, you know, base level assumption. But when we were at Copa, we put a position up, I think for customer success maybe, and we got over 700 applications. And you think this, you know, maybe we had five to ten people at the time, but for basically two people to go through 700 applications. Wow. To determine who is going to be the best fit is damn hard. Like, yeah. You know, you have to start, you know, cutting people off at some capacity. 
some standards for whatever they are. And I think for a lot of people, the school that they went to, right? Like if they went to an Ivy League, it's like, okay, yes, bump this person up. Um, but I think the interesting thing about Canvas is how can we bump people up on the list, even if they don't fit the this criteria that we have kind of set in our minds to be, oh, these will be successful campuses. It seems like something that's really, in a lot of parts, not the recruiter's fault. Because I can only imagine, like, let's say you have, like, 700 candidates, but what if you're at a place like, I don't know, like Goldman Sachs, and you have 7,000 candidates? Like, it's it's almost, it, it doesn't make sense that, uh, that you can expect somebody or even like a team of like 10 people to go through that and really understand each applicant. So the idea oh, of, of having like a software or, or something to really help you sift through that with a, it's kind of like a, a data uh, uh, analytics job <laughs> of trying to understand all the different data points and what to look for. So I can see what, what you're doing with your team uh, as really important in helping people go through this crazy amount of applicants and really understanding uh, what they're looking at. Because I can imagine that it's, it's it's not easy to do that. Oh, yeah. I I would never blame the recruiters or even the companies for that matter. Like If they have the mindset that they're open to, you know, offering the job to anyone or accepting applicants from you know, any background, but people who will match what they're looking for, then, you know, we can't blame people for using the software that they have to the best of their abilities. Um, I, I think you're right. Like, it is a data problem, and I think it hasn't been solved yet, but that's what makes me excited about Canvas, because I think they are doing a good job of trying to solve that problem. One thing that I want to talk to you specifically about was... um when I hear, when I see Canvas and I see it's a diversity recruitment platform, um, the first thing that I really think of, um, that I've known people to have problems with in the past is the term, um, uh, uh, you're a diversity hire. Um, and I don't know if you've ever had to, like, tackle with this, um, but I, I listened to this one, um, uh, uh, girl who, um, was about my age. She's about 21. She's graduating from Syracuse and, um, she's applying to a bunch of jobs. She worked in IT. She's really, really smart person and got a job at Microsoft. And, um, she was really excited about it. And then a bunch of people kept on coming up to her and saying, well, obviously you got the job. It was easier for you because you're black and they wanted to, uh, improve their numbers. And so that's why it's easier for you than is for someone else who doesn't fit your quota. And she felt so crappy when people would tell her that. And she's heard it in the past, so she said that she wasn't too phased by it. But the idea that, that people are, like, calling you a diversity hire and, and caring about, like, what you're... that you just, like, check a box... I, I really like that you guys are looking more at like these are the data points in your merit and your skill and who you are rather than like any data point that I can make your company look like you 
care about underrepresented groups when I don't know. What what do you think about that? Because it it really, I I really started to identify with that because I was listening to people tell me they're like, oh, it's going to be so much easier for you because you're a woman. Like it's gonna it's gonna be so much harder for me to get a job because I'm X Y Z. Meanwhile, for you, like life is so much easier. Like, have you ever had to deal with that conversation? To a certain extent. I mean, I think generally it comes from a place of people being curious about their own ability to search for a job because at the end of the day, a company is going to hire whoever is most qualified for that position. And yeah. if they happen to be black and female, great. Um, more, more often than not, is they are white and male. And I, I think something that I've heard at Canvas, and it, it might have come from one of our customers or, or maybe internally, but they said that companies should strive to have their employees look like their customers. And mm. I think that is a really good way of putting it because especially in tech, especially a decade or two ago, it was primarily white and male. And, you know, to this day, I don't really see many females in executive positions in Silicon Valley. And so being able to understand that there is a problem when, you know, it's just one group that are typically leading the companies or executives at those companies and being able to understand why that is and have, you know, have your company reflect the population around you, I think is so crucial. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think it's, it's fair when people say that you're a diversity hired, someone who just got hired because what the company cares about is hiring someone who's going to do a really good job. And if they help their diversity, that's great. But you know, that I don't think it's the final decision maker for them. Yeah. It's it's something that, that a lot of people have to uh, deal with, with like people just being really critical to them about an achievement that they just had. And it's like, I don't know if, if somebody's listening and, and they're thinking about doing that, just like think twice <laughs> before you say that to somebody. Can it, it can really make somebody feel like they don't belong in some place where they've been hired because they're really good at their job. And, um, they have all of these skills that might not be, um, a specific school or something like that. But like, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of vetting that goes on. And, and if you get the job, then you earned it. You did a good job and congrats. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, so I, I, I want to talk a little bit about, um, uh, kind of like your hopes for, uh, this new role that you have and, and, like, I don't know if there's things that you're excited about. Um, obviously, if there's things that are in the works, then you can't tell me about them. But um, I'm I'm interested in like uh, what you're excited about. Um, if if there's new things that you are working on, like what's what's in store for you in the next uh, few months or years at uh, Canvas? Yeah, well, so I took the role because the role is focused on the candidate experience. Um, I have never been a huge fan of designing for B2B. I think it's just not as interesting of problems because I like the sense that there are millions of people coming to your website. What can you do with them? And like, how can you get them around in the way that they want to? Mm-hmm. And so the, like the mass marketplace side is super interesting. And for the candidates on Canvas, 
it's an experience that has been relatively untouched over time, um, understandably, because our revenue comes from the B2B partners. And so thinking about ways of improving that candidate experience is super exciting. Um, and so my role really is split between uh, product design and product strategy. So looking at what people do, understanding conversion on signups per se, or conversion on profile information to make sure that they provide information that can be and really understanding our pain points. I think an interesting project I've been working on recently has been doing user interviews with candidates from across the United States and just understanding their pain points and, you know, what can we build to make that experience a lot better for them. That's really exciting. There's, it's always really neat when you're working with something that's that big and that you have uh, so many different data points to work with and so many like really exciting things to do in the future and to constantly improve and have a, uh, a customer base where you can constantly try to make it better and more usable for them. So I'm really excited for you and everything that's going to happen for you in the next um a uh, uh, while, even though we just met, but I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I'm looking forward to following you on LinkedIn and, and seeing how everything works out. Um, but uh, the the last thing that I want to talk to you quick about um, before we wrap up um, is uh, what is this trip that you're on right now? I, I know that right now you're you're talking to me from a, a short term rental, and so. It seems like you've been traveling a lot, like working from your laptop. And how's that going? Yeah, so I have lived in San Francisco for the past five years. And during COVID, uh, it just became a very challenging city to live in. Uh, understandably, there's lots of petty crimes because the, the disparity between, you know, kind of the wealthiest people and the poorest people is great and San Francisco has a lot of problems and I think my boyfriend and I just got kind of fed up with it and just wanted a, a change and I had not seen my family for about a year and a half because of COVID and not wanting to you know pass it on to them or my siblings kids and with that we decided to put our stuff in storage and go on a cross country road trip. So yeah, we left end of April and so far we have traveled to San Francisco or from San Francisco to Maine. So we wow. made it across the entire country, which is pretty neat. So yeah, we've been stopping really like a week or so in a place and then moving on. Um understandably we both have full time jobs so staying somewhere during the week is uh, pretty crucial to us and having a good Wi-Fi connection. So yeah, we've traveled kind of all over. We took the southern route there, so we went to a bunch of national parks in Utah and Texas to see some family, to North Carolina, and then see, see my family in Pennsylvania. And then, yeah, we're just up in Maine, and now I'm sitting alongside Lake Champlain in New York. Wow. <laughs> What, so it was really just that wanting to change the scenery and being stuck in the same place for so long that you said, I just want to get all of that experience that I've been missing the last two years and just 
kind of accelerate it in <laughs> a couple months. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think San Francisco is a really beautiful city and we loved it, but yeah, the apartment that we were in, you know, a 700 square foot apartment split between two people definitely gets, you know, old, at, <laughs> uh, old after so long. Um, especially when you guys are home, you know, 24 seven because you can't really go anywhere else. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it was just like, let's just go see other parts of the country that, you know, we, couldn't have seen before because you know it, you can only fly to so many places or like that car to so many places so we figured just taking a car would give us the freedom to explore as much as we wanted well that sounds really exciting where where are you going next do you have plans for where you want to go next or is it kind of more spontaneous yeah uh at this time it's a little more spontaneous i think we'll <laughs> probably head to canada at some point my boyfriend has family up there. Um, so yeah, traveling around there and eventually we'll settle back in California at some point, um, probably later this year. Yeah. Well, this seems like a really exciting part of your life. You have uh, a side project um, that just because of the situation with COVID and everything, uh, lulled a little bit, but it's, it's such a great company to work with and such a like great niche uh, market that so many people need and it makes a lot of people's lives and accessibility to internships so much more ex- like possible which probably makes a big difference for a lot of people and then you also have canvas which is really trying to help out just the, the recruitment process and make things more accessible to people and so i'm just i'm sure that even though you said that you're not part of the recruitment uh, part of that team. Um, the work that you've done over like the past couple of years probably made a, a big impact in a lot of people's lives. So I'm sure that if they were here, they'd probably say thank you. <laughs> and and I I think that everything you're doing is so neat. And uh, as we close out, I'll have um uh I'll I'll close out with uh myself and and how people can reach out to me. And if people are listening to this and they think that you're really interesting and they either um, want to ask you if you need to talk to them or maybe talk to like a group of people that um, are deciding what they want to do with their career and like life or anything like that or even just like to look at your portfolio and get to know you a little bit more um, we'll end with you so how people can reach out to you um, does that does that sound good yeah I'll start out and then and then we'll end with you um yeah so uh so my name is uh, Emily Giordano. I'm a uh, web designer and web code developer. Um, I love making websites, whether it's a static website with just a couple pages, um, or it's something really advanced like a membership website that you sign into and uh, your members have accounts and there's a bunch of stuff that you can do on the site, or e-commerce. Like it, There's so many different things that you can do, and it's really exciting, and that's what I love to do. And so if you want to reach out to me, uh, you can email me at emily, which is E-M-I-L-Y, at greatdesignly.com, or you can find my company website, which is greatdesignly.com. And uh, and now we can finish up with Courtney and how you can reach out to her. Yeah, you guys can find me and my contact information on my personal website, which is www.courtneysabo.com, and that's C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y. F-A-B-O dot com. Perfect. And I'll put all of this in the 
description. So if people just want to click on that, they'll be able to find that really easily. Perfect. Well, thank, thank you so much for chatting with me today and like taking up some of your morning. Uh, it sounds like you're in like a really beautiful place. So I hope you have a, a great rest of your week until your next adventure. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me, Emily. Awesome. Well, until next time. Yes, of course. Thanks.